um, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Go ahead and be seated. All right. So here we are, church, family. We're we're celebrating a year. We're thankful to the Lord for his mercy toward us that after one year we're here. And when I I think about those uh, Sundays about a year ago when there were literally five of us in here, Right and um, and it's like let's let's ditch the guitar and circle up and and just pray right um, and it's it's amazing to see uh, how, who and how the Lord has brought people together um, and and even now to think that we have a good number of people who are traveling for Thanksgiving who are who are out of town and and that our family has grown it's an exciting time. Uh, I think it's cool, even though we'll always have the traveling thing, I think it's cool that we get to celebrate our anniversary uh, right before Thanksgiving, right? That each Sunday before Thanksgiving, we get to celebrate what the Lord has done in making us a family. Um, And so this week, we're going to re-up the vision. Uh, We had been, if you're new and you're like, "Eh, it says we're going to be in 1 Peter, uh, we have been working through uh, study in First Peter, and we'll get back to that next week, fam. But this week, we need to re-up the vision. We need to remind ourselves over and over again why the Lord has called us together, who we are to be as a church. How do we move forward? We've seen some growth. We've, we have things to celebrate. We've seen uh, communities formed. We have three gospel communities meeting throughout the city, right, north and southeast. We have gospel communities families of missionary servants that are gathering together uh, to live life together and to uh, worship the Lord and to to be about mission for our neighborhoods. Uh, We've got, he's in the children's ministry. This is is why I love this dude. Uh, But we we have a guy who, um, Daniel Dixon, is is up, he's he's an elder apprentice. He's going to be an elder apprentice, which means that the Lord is multiplying leadership in our community. We have new families coming. Uh, we, we have so much to celebrate, and yet there is so much work to do. Because when we started, we said we were, not, we, we were not going to just be about trying to get people to come to church. But we were going to be a church on mission. And we've said that already. We exist to magnify Jesus by making disciples who apply the gospel to every facet of life. And we do that because we see that the world is broken and that the gospel is first and foremost news. That Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. 
And so we believe that news changes people, the gospel changes people, and that people change the world. And we say this over and over again because I want it to sink in. You are the people the gospel has changed. If you call yourself Christian, that means the gospel has changed you, or it ought to have. It means that each week as we gather together and we hear the word preached, there ought to be a shifting in your mindset. You ought to move away from, I am citizen of America with America-centrism or Westernism as my central governing worldview and into this idea that I am a resident alien. I'm an elect exile or elect exile of the dispersion. Right? We ought to look at diaspora communities. We have all of the, the prophets telling us about Israel scattered abroad in lands that aren't their own. We have a history, even in our country and in our world today, of an, a diaspora community. Right, The African diaspora to whom we as a church can look and say, what is it, what does it mean to be a, a, an elect exile of the dispersion? And we can see these things and say, even though we're home, it's never quite home. And when things don't go well for us by the world and the land and the place that we live in, there's not surprise, but there's vigilant hope, heavenly hope. Church, we are... We are a community, a, a group of believers who are scattered throughout the, the world for the glory of God, who live like this is not our home, but as ambassadors, we are outposts of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what this next year has to be for us. I am happy where we are right now, but I will not be happy. And I, I feel like as, shep, as, as your under-shepherd, as your pastor, that I, I will not have led you well if we do not move forward as a people. And so we come to Acts 8 because I believe that when we look at the principles of Acts 8, we're going to see some things that we need to do that will help us move forward in what the Lord has for us as a church. And so I want to give you some context for the scripture that you heard read earlier. Because it starts out, Saul approved of his execution. Whose? Well, in chapter 7, what we see is that um, really this story begins, well, chapter 1. But in chapter 6, all of this is sort of rounding out a story that began in chapter 6. Where the church, like us, was newly formed, new trying to figure this out. And what they're seeing is as they press towards diversity and, and we're going to do that and that's difficult and we need to pray for other leaders who can come and, and guide us in, in, in ways that are uncomfortable for each of us but that bring in a diverse grouping of people, right? That's just a general principle, church. If we're trying to be a multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic, multi-political worldview church, that means that there's never going to be a service where everything that happens is, your, is in your comfort zone, as it were. If you are comfortable with more than 85% of what happens in any church you go to, it is not diverse. I'm just going to help you with that one. But we're here to talk about us. We look at this text. And in chapter 6, 
They're working out what it is to be this radically diverse community of believers, and they're failing. Because they're a group of widows, Hellenistic widows, who are not being cared for. The predominantly Jewish church and their predominantly Jewish customs and cultures think about think about and understand the needs of the Jewish people, but they are failing to care for these now engrafted Hellenistic folks. And so we see that people come to the disciples and their complaints by the Hellenists. And they rose against the Hebrews because the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. They were, they, were, they were inside, but they still felt outside. And they went to, and man, this, might, this, this is a sermon all on its own. But they went to the disciples who were Jewish leaders and they said, we as Hellenists are, are not getting the things that we need. And what I love about the apostles, the disciples, is that they didn't say you need to just submit to the teaching of the church in this and not cause division. What they did was address the problem. They said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick men from among you who are going to lead in this way. They're called deacons. And what I love about, I love, I love the book of Acts because you get these little details, right? So you've got Peter, Andrew, James, John, right? Uh, what, what type of names are these Jewish names? Now listen to the men who become deacons. Stephen, Timon, Parmenaeus, Nicholas of Antioch, Nicanor, Prochorus. Those are all Greek names. And so the apostles in their wisdom said, we, A, we have work to do, but B, we can't, we can't, put into leadership more Jews who are culturally unaware of the needs of the Hellenists and expect that they're going to lead well and that we're going to then be a happy, diverse community of believers. They put Hellenists in places of power and leadership. And one of those was a guy named Stephen. And so Stephen's job was to serve. He was called to serve, but out of that service, he, he, he gained a voice. And in chapter 7, what we see is that he ends up being arrested for the great signs and wonders that he was doing. And he proclaims the gospel in the midst of those who were accusing him, and he is stoned to death. And as he's being stoned to death, he, he catches the vision of heaven. He sees Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty, and he says, into my hands I commit the spirit and forgive them. Just like Jesus, he, he pronounces forgiveness on those who would oppress and murder him. And so in chapter 8, we see that Saul, who would later become Paul, is on the outskirts of this with full approval. And that's important because the second half of the book of Acts is all about what Paul, the apostle Paul, does. Right, But he starts out and he's here. And Stephen is a servant who proclaims the gospel but is not concerned with his physical or bodily harm. And I look at this and I look at the things that we're called to do from God. And church, if we're going to do this, 
if we're going to do this, if we're going to be the church together, then we must have, number one, we need a hope beyond comfort. We talk about remembering that we're not of this kingdom, this earthly kingdom, this American empire. We're not of this. We're of the kingdom of God, the inbreaking kingdom of God. Well, one of the things that this American kingdom worships and loves is comfort. Consider, consider that. Right? Consider the fact that maybe, maybe more than being wrong, we hate being uncomfortable. What in the church derails conversations about reconciliation the most? It's not theological inaccuracies. It's people not wanting to deal with the discomfort that comes from being faced with the realities of the world. Discomfort. We love comfort. We call it freedom. Right? We love life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But all of these things equate to comfort. We want to be comfortable. And part of being comfortable means we want to avoid the uncomfortable reality that we are dying. Consider that we have a whole profession that is undergirded by this truth. Right? The medical profession. What is the medical profession? It's a bunch of people, namely us, going to doctors and nurses begging them to do the one thing that in their studies they know ultimately they can't do, keep us alive. We don't, and at the end of our days, when we cannot, when we cannot but recognize and admit that death is coming, when there's no other option but to look it straight in the face, what do we do now? We say, well, just make me comfortable. And so we spend, what, 75% of our life's medical expenses come in the last two years of life. Why? Because we want to be comfortable. We believe in comfort. We believe in this so much that we... I heard uh, Stanley Hauerwas, uh, theologian at Duke, and then we'll move on to the next point, say this. It's really interesting. He said that in seminary, pastors can go and... and They'll be, they'll be told, hey, you need to do this course on modern theology and how the West has shaped theology. Uh, and, and they can say, you know what, I don't really want to take that. What if I do this? And most of the times, most seminaries will acquiesce. But if you go to medical school and they say, you need to take a course on human anatomy, and you say, I'm not really good with anatomy. I just want to, like, love people. So can I take a class on, like, doing medicine together, right? Like, doing life together. Can I do that? What do they say? Like, no, go find another profession. Why? Because we believe that in the medical field, something's at stake. But when it comes to theology and to our pastors and the training that they ought to require, we, we just, frankly, we... We don't. Not that much is at stake, right? Like, we believe our lives and our comfort and our hope is in the hands of doctors, but not in the hands of the church and family. Like, as long as we do that, we'll always seek comfort over truth. And so Stephen and even this church, they know that discomfort is coming. They know that they are potentially going to die, especially now that Stephen has been killed. And yet they continue on their mission because they have a hope 
in heaven that is greater than any discomfort that earth can bring. If we are going to move forward, church, we need to have a hope greater than our comfort. The second thing that we see in this text is that we need to move from Sundays to church. You hear me? It's that time. We've been working this out. We formed a liturgy of sorts. We, we've got this gathering thing. There's some work we need to do, right? Like, you know, and, and a new space will help that. And, and all these things that we've been praying for will help that. But at this point in our lives, in our maturity, we need to move um, from, from rolling around on the ground to crawling. And that means we have to this year go from Sundays to church. So what do I mean by that? Let's look at this text. There arose a great persecution on that day against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions and Samaria except the apostles. So they were all scattered throughout the region except who? The apostles. And then it says in verse 4, now those who were scattered about went preaching the word. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Okay, so they were all scattered except who? The apostles. And then all who were scattered went about preaching the word. What does that mean about the people that were preaching the word? They were not the apostles. These were the everyday lay people of the church. This was the whole of the church. They were unified in mission, and even as they were scattered, they preached the gospel. Do you hear this? They went from being just a gathered people who hear the proclaimed word from Peter or James, right, to a people scattered without need of the apostles to do the work of the church. And family, we must, we must move into that. We gather to be reminded of the gospel. We scatter to proclaim it. Right? I am wrong if I think that once I, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, close it up, go, and I'm done for the week. No, I am called everywhere I go to proclaim the gospel truth in word and in deed and family. So are you. The next step of our church life will not happen unless we feel empowered to that end. You, you, you are all called to the work of evangelists. You may have different functions in that because I see some of you. You're like, ah, uh, I don't have that Billy Graham thing. I don't really either. Or, ah, uh, I'm, I'm not like great with apologetics. Listen, the Lord has uniquely gifted you in such a way that when you use that gift, it is vital for his glory and it is integral and it is necessary and it is helpful in the church, us, being on mission and proclaiming the gospel to the least, the last, and the lost. We have to move from Sundays to church. We have to be the church and so that means there are unique positions that you find yourself in where you're engaging with unbelievers or you're in the face of injustice or you're seeing the effects of 
something like gentrification in your community. And, and the time to discuss it will still be there, but we're at a place where rather than just discussing injustice or just talking about reconciliation or then just reminding each other of the gospel, we're proclaiming the gospel. We're doing justice. We are actively opposing injustice. We are pursuing reconciliation in our words and in our deeds and in the presence of and with our neighbors. Family, this is what we are called to do. And we must do it. And so this year, you're going to hear a lot more encouragement to that end. You have all the tools that you need. Let me, why is it that they didn't need one, why is it that they didn't just go in 12 places with one apostle in each group leading a church? Do you know? It's because every single one of those Christians was, was indwelled by the same Holy Spirit that indwelled the apostles, the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the church. Some of us are scared to do this because we do not have a sound, robust, empowering doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Right? We need some Holy Ghosts in this church. that moves us and drives us. I don't know what to say. That's good. The Holy Spirit is with you. Speak. Right? I don't know if I should. That's good. Move. The Holy Spirit will guide your conscience. Walk in faith because you have the Spirit of God. And then listen, fam, because we're all right here. Then you have the church to check you. I don't know. Maybe bring that in a little bit. Do you have the church to check you? But move. Don't, don't, just, don't just grieve injustice or, or lostness or, or your own sin in your life. Don't just grieve it. Fight. Act. Move. You have the Holy Spirit of God. You are able We have to move from Sundays to church. Number three, we have to begin to effectively minister to our community. We've been talking about this for a while, but we see it. I don't think we need to do much more analysis. Analysis is always having to happen. I get that. We don't need much more pre-action analysis. At this point, what we need is just to act. We see the hunger in our city. We see the homelessness in our city. We see the, the divisions in our city. We see um, the effects of, of influxes of affluence into our city. We see these things in our city, and we've talked about them, and we've talked about them, and the time to talk about them will continue, but now is a time for action. This is a year for action. As a church, we will feed the homeless and the poor and the needy. We will join with civic groups, Christian or not, in so much as they are pursuing the justice of God. We will join with them. This will be a year where Union Church's presence, even though we are small, will be felt for the glory of God. 
They ministered effectively. I love this. So they're scattered. They're fearing for their lives. They have no comfort, but they're imbibed with, they're, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they have the gospel message. And it says they were scattered, and they went about preaching the word. It gives us an example of one. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when, listen to this, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, they were in one accord with him when they heard him, one, and two, saw the signs that he did, which means that you can no longer hide. You cannot hide behind, I'm going to be a good neighbor, I'm going to live a different life, and I'm going to be joyful enough in the midst of suffering that my neighbors will say, well, gee, why are you so joyful? Maybe that'll happen, but, but I feel like as a church, this is what we hide behind. I'm going to live a life where I don't have to say anything. I'm going to take Francis of Assisi out of context, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Why is it that, why is it that they were one accord and paid attention to him? A, because he spoke and they saw the signs that he did. And it must be both for us, church. We have no voice with those in need until we actively meet their needs. And without a voice, we cannot proclaim gospel news, right? Isn't that what Romans 10 says? How will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless they are preached to? It is news that you must believe, which means we can't get away with feeding you, saying God bless you, and then walking away. We feed and we say, we feed you because there is a man who is the bread of life. He is living and in his kingdom we know he is coming and there will be no hunger. We free the slaves. We, 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 <clears throat> we fight human trafficking because we serve a God who has created us in his image. And whose son came saying, uh, this is the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom to the captives, freedom to the slaves. And in his kingdom, his kingdom which is coming, there is no slavery. Therefore, we as citizens of that kingdom fight slavery. And then we do it with this powerful truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is one of those ways where, and I harp on it a lot, I know, but it's because the vast majority of us in here are Americans. We were born in America. We have all of the weird American eccentricities, one of which is that we find it feasible, plausible, just grammatically even possible or appropriate to say, Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. Jesus is my Lord. That is, that is only true because Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is, it's not like Jesus is your Lord and not yours. It's our Lord and not theirs. Jesus is Lord. And people are either in subjection to him, in willing obedience to Lord Jesus, or they are in rebellion against Lord Jesus. Right? There's no personal claim to Jesus. The fact is, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And unless you move away, and I've, I've come to believe this because I've come to see it. Y'all, it's been a hard two weeks for me. I'm just not even going to lie. And I'm wrestling with the American church. <laughs> I really am. Right? It's just been a hard, and I say hard two weeks. That hard two weeks is actually like the working out of a very difficult three years. Really, a very difficult to be a Christian in pastoral ministry, um, for me, since Trayvon. I'm going to just say that. Like, it is hard. And one of the reasons that it's hard and that I've come to diagnose, one of the problems is that we have this idea of a personal Jesus, which means faith is personal, which means the outcomes of faith are personal. But when we realize that Jesus is Lord of everything, that means that faith is not privatized. Faith is corporate. Therefore, the effects of faith must be felt corporately. They were, for, they were in Acts. They were in the early church. They were straight until the Reformation. They were. And even after the Reformation, you would see it from, from country to country. But, but we have this idea of a personal Jesus. Depeche Mode even mocked it, right? Some of y'all know Depeche Mode. That's all right. We'll set that down. But listen... Philip went to the city proclaiming to them Christ and the crowds were with one accord paying attention to him because they heard him and they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with loud voice uh, came from out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, right? So what are the types of things that we ought to be doing? What is it that when we talk about ministering effectively to our city, what is it that we're seeing in this? Number one, we're seeing the spiritual needs of the city are ministered to effectively and the physical needs. Guys, this is simple. If there were hungry people, the church fed them. If there were spiritually oppressed people, the church preached Christ and freed them. If there were women who were um, being abused, Jesus knelt beside them and, and said the most amazing thing in the world Who's left to condemn you? No one? Well, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He protected her physically and emotionally, spiritually, and then told her to walk and change life. Church, that, that power is possible. We have it. But we must, we, must, we must observe the needs and we must effectively minister to them. So we're going to do that this year. And then the last thing, the last thing, and I wish that I had not put it on this, but we need to live lives, lead lives patterned by the gospel. Lives of repentance and humility. Lives of truth and mercy. Lives moving towards a heavenly hope. Holiness, justice, mercy, humility. These are the things that we as God's people are called to be. It's amazing to me as we move on. It says, there were unclean spirits crying out with loud voice that came out of people. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. 
Like, part of me would love to just change our mission statement because it's so arbitrary anyway. I, I believe it. Like, don't get me wrong. But, like, First Baptist Jerusalem didn't have, like, First Baptist Jerusalem existed, you know, right? But for the joy of the city. Church, we exist for the joy of the city. I think about the Psalms. I think about all these times where it's called out, let the nations be glad. The gladness of the peoples, the joy of the city. We exist for the joy of the city. And the only way that there can be joy as a Christian, you see this manifested in your life, right? When are you most joyful? It's not when the things are going the best, right? It's not like when everything is going. You might be happy then, but like your joy has, is not contingent upon that really, right? One of the times that you find yourself most joyful it's the times when you most fully believe the gospel, the most fully hope in Jesus. It's the times when you most fully find your identity outside of all of the other factors of the world, right? When you find your identity in your job, it's going well, you're happy. It's not going well, who am I? Should I even do this job? Do I need to move? What, what do I do? I don't know. When you find your joy in your kids and they're obedient and you're happy and when they're not, uh, right? When you find your joy in other people, what happens? They let you down. That's what we do with people. It's, it's, our, it's our thing, right? When you find your identity in, in any other kind of thing except for the Lord Jesus, you find yourself lacking joy even in the times when you're happy. Because there's always that understanding that this happiness is grass, dust, wind, vapor, momentary. We have joy in Jesus. And so our lives should be shaped by joy so that we can bring joy to the city. And that only happens as we are shaped by the gospel. It turns out that the very same gospel they proclaimed, changed them as they proclaimed and lived it out. Which means that the best Tim Keller book or the best Abidiana Buile book or the best Charles Murray book or the best Augustine book will never, never, never give you as much insight into the joy and the truth of the gospel as actually believing and obeying the gospel. And so we must. And family, this is what we will do this year. We will find hope beyond comfort. Right? We will move from Sundays to church. We will effectively minister to the needs of our city. And we will live lives shaped by the gospel. I'm really excited for this next year. I really am. Um, and if you're if you're you're here and and you want to be a part of that, like we 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 love to have you. We'd love to have you. Let's pray.